0: Coming up, Afghan translators, Taliban murders, and a government turning a blind eye. From the Daily Mail newsroom, I'm Jenny Longden. And this is Scoop, a Mail Plus podcast series where we take a look back at some of the mail's most remarkable investigations and hear from the journalists who got the scoop.
1: It's been heartbreaking to hear some of the stories. I've had interpreters emailing me for years now that have been desperate to come to the UK.
0: They worked for British forces, putting their lives on the line as interpreters during the war in Afghanistan. Many of the men were forced to flee their home country because of the threat of Taliban revenge attacks. But when Daily Mail journalists discovered that many translators had been denied entrance to Britain, they decided to do something about it. The betrayal of the Brave campaign was born, putting pressure on MPs to change government policy, allowing these brave men and their families to settle in Britain. On the front line, Afghan interpreters faced the same dangers as the forces they worked with. But when the troops were ordered home, locally employed staff were left behind many are still being targeted by the Taliban. The Daily Mail's defence editor, Larissa Brown, was one of the reporters who took up the story. Larissa, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Just tell me, first of all, this was a massive coup for the Daily Mail. How did the story come to your attention?
1: Yes, it's been something that I've been working on since 2015, so five years now, which is obviously quite a long time. It came about because we had um, one of my colleagues, David Williams, was working in Afghanistan over a number of years, and he came across lots of Afghan interpreters who had been working with the British government, and they had felt very let down because the government had announced in 2012 that they were bringing in a new scheme that would enable interpreters who had served alongside UK forces on the battlefield to come to Britain. But they had very specific qualifying criteria, And it meant that lots of interpreters missed out. And so they were furious and and they told us their stories from sort of as early as 2012 onwards, really.
0: And some of these people were helping the British government and played a a big role uh, over here. Just tell me a little bit about their background and, and what you found out about them.
1: Yes, we spoke to a variety of people, nearly sort of 200 over the years that have contacted the Daily Mail specifically. Some of them were interpreting for very senior military figures obviously around Afghanistan in Helmand province where that was, you know, the most dangerous part but also in in the capital, Kabul. And they were on TV screens, so their faces were shown and and they say that because some of them, you know, were quite influential interpreters that their lives were in danger because the Taliban recognised their faces afterwards and accused them of being spies for the British and so started to target many of them. As an interpreter, you're considered uh, a spy to the country, a spy to foreigners, so uh, you're an outsider for them. The same as the soldiers, you're targeted for them, you're a high-value target for them.
0: That obviously puts them in a huge amount of danger. So what was it that they were saying to you they were suffering from over in Afghanistan?
1: Well, we have had so many different examples. uh, One of them, he was called Popal actually was getting so many death threats that he had fled Afghanistan. And he was then, ended up in Iran where he was tortured and murdered. He was executed. And that was the story actually that first started off our um, campaign in 2015. And then after that, we got more interpreters contacting us who said that they'd had death threats through their door. So sort of notes from the Taliban saying that they were going to get them and hunt them down. We had one interpreter called Wahid and his seven-year-old daughter was handed a death threat letter outside to their family home, and she had been told to give it to her father. And he had worked for three years with British troops in Helmand, and the letter was stamped and signed by the Taliban. And it said that they'd be killed and their bodies fed to the dogs because he worked as a translator. And we've we've had many cases like that. We've also had um, another interpreter that was that was killed in Afghanistan. He was called Parviz and. He was just 22 and he'd worked with British forces and he was shot at least four times in the chest on his family's farm. And we spoke to his brother, Sam, who had told us all about how he'd signed up as a translator with the Brits in 2011. So, yes, many, many cases. And interpreters forced to flee their homes and move to other places across Afghanistan and their cars shot up and, as I said, the death threat. Two of my friends, uh, which I knew them on personal level, got shot in the head just because they were an interpreter. They were murdered, cold-blooded, on the street.
0: And as those stories started to come in and, you know, you built more of a picture of what these guys were going through, you know, what did you think? It must have been quite an unbelievable revelation.
1: It's been heartbreaking to hear some of the stories. I've had, you know, interpreters emailing me for years now that have been desperate to come to the UK. And they felt like they they really missed out on the government scheme. So, I mean, for example, one of them that I've been in quite close contact with, he's called Hash, and he'd been serving with the UK troops for five years, and then he'd been told to quit his job because he was getting death threats from the Taliban, and the British officer had said, oh, I think you should resign and leave. So he did that, and because he'd quit rather than he'd resigned, he meant that he wasn't eligible for the government sanctuary scheme in 2012, which was just awful. I hear from him all the time and, and actually we have just had a few victories in our campaign and he's one of those that's been successful. So it's sort of the emotion of feeling so bad for these people and then we've obviously been so pleased that some of them have been able to come to the UK because of our campaigning.
0: And so going back to the beginning when you were building up this picture of what was going on, you'll have contacted the government and informed them of, of what you'd learned. What, what was their response then?
1: Yeah, well, we started off. We did a lot of work where we were submitting evidence to the Defence Select Committee, and they. We managed to get them to to do a whole inquiry into the issue of the interpreters, and so we sort of built it up that way, getting the MPs on board. Um, and we also helped sort of push a, a petition on the on the internet where, where we got 170,000 people to sign it, and that included former head of the army, former head of the military, former head of the REF and military heroes. So that was quite a big thing for us. And then the government had sort of pushed back for for several years and it was just, it seemed totally strange from my perspective because I didn't really understand why they couldn't be more generous with their scheme. And eventually Gavin Williamson, who was Defence Secretary in 2018, he then changed the government policy and said that he'd widen the criteria. So all those interpreters that had served prior to 2012, and were made redundant, could now come to the UK. At the time, it seemed like a big victory for us, because he said that it should enable about 50 interpreters to Britain. Then that only resulted in two of them coming. So we, we then continued the campaign, because we obviously felt that that was a huge injustice. And we managed to get a few different victories in terms of Home Office policy, where Afghan interpreters who were in Britain already under the original scheme, could then have their wives join them.
0: My family is in Afghanistan. They are not safe. They, they will take the revenge from any of the family members, which they have done in the past
1: interpreters who had originally come to the UK had to bring their wives and children with them at the time and if they didn't then their wives and children couldn't then easily join them we also got their visa fees wavered which meant that they weren't kicked out after two and a half years and then we got another big victory and then Wallace and Priti Patel sat down with me and told me how they thought that you know these, these interpreters had been badly treated and they wanted to right the wrongs of the past and they widened The criteria yet again and it looks like that could let in a hundred interpreters now plus their families
0: and thinking back what was the moment when you realized that this might actually bring about change and you know this story is worth pursuing
1: um i think there was a few years where it was frustrating because we didn't sort of get anywhere and then i think when gavin williamson became defense secretary he um it was great because he really wanted to do something to help. And so I think at that point I thought, well actually we've now got new ministers and we also had Sajid Javid who was the new home secretary and he also seemed like he wanted to make a change. So I think it was probably at those points that we could see that there was sort of a there was a different direction and that actually we could we could end up getting a proper policy change at that point.
0: So a bit of a U turn from the government there. Do you think that's because You know, these families obviously were living in terrible fear. Did that get across to them, you know, just how much danger these people were under?
1: I mean, one of the things that both of the ministers said is that they wanted to sort of send a signal to interpreters that we recruit in the future that you know, Britain will stand by them. And I think they were perhaps worried about the messaging in future conflict. But they have been quite reluctant to sort of acknowledge that the interpreters are under threat. It's all very complicated, but there is, a, there is another scheme that the government has that enables interpreters to come and live in Britain if they can show that they've been intimidated by the Taliban. And under that scheme, they've not allowed anyone into the UK yet. They've, they've moved interpreters around in the country. there's still sort of a a perception from the UK government that the interpreters aren't a huge threat or threat to the point that they need to leave the country altogether. And I think that's something we've continued to work on. And that is actually something that Pretty and Ben did say they would now look at, that they would review all those intimidation claims. And I think that's our sort of main focus going forward as
0: well. And that's obviously completely contrary to what evidence you've heard.
1: Completely. It's just, it's so infuriating because We've sent the Ministry of Defence and we've also submitted to the Defence Select Committee pictures of cars and shot at and pictures of interpreters and their families who have been attacked and the death notes. We've sent them lots of evidence of that. We've sent them a picture of a guy on a hospital bed with gunshot wounds. And the, the Ministry of Defence still say that they don't consider their lives to be in danger enough. And the interpreters find it frustrating because they're being moved from one place to another and they say, well, that, that doesn't mitigate the risk because the Taliban you know, have spied everywhere and they can find them wherever they are. So you know, those interpreters are constantly having to move because they worked with the British and all they want is to come to the UK and, and not have to worry
0: about that. And for those that have now come to the UK, what do you yeah. know of them?
1: We've interviewed several of them. And one of them, he's called Mohammed Nazir and he was one of these two that came to the uk after gavin williamson's policy change and he's now living with his beautiful family he's got five kids and he's in a semi-detached home in oldham and he's super happy and he'd worked with you know the uk for nine years so it was an awful long time so he's obviously absolutely delighted and you know i think he's been so thankful to to the newspaper and saying that we've never given up on them And we've we've got got other cases. We've got um, a guy called Tori Ali. He'd been in the UK for four years, so he came under the original scheme, but he hadn't been able to bring his wife. And because of our campaigning and the government changing that that rule, his wife joined him just this summer. Obviously that's, you know, it's life-changing for them because for the first time ever they're living in a country where they feel safe and they don't have to worry about bombs and bullets around the corner.
0: How do you hope to continue putting pressure on the government and uncovering this story?
1: We've got to continue doing our stories. We've got lots of case studies of people that are still obviously stuck in Afghanistan that don't even qualify under this latest scheme. So it's about putting the pressure on the government and showing that those people are just as worthy of coming to Britain as the others and and one of the problems with the scheme has always been it said that you've, you've got to have served either 12 months or 18 months in Helmand and a lot of these interpreters would argue well it doesn't matter whether you served one month or 12 months to the Taliban because if you served with the UK or or even you know any other Western forces then you're considered a traitor so we've got to continue highlighting those cases and also we've got interpreters that have already fled Afghanistan and they also don't qualify because they're now in in what deemed a third country so for example there's, there's one interpreter who's in um, a refugee camp in Lesbos and he would have qualified under the latest announcement that Ben Wallace and Pretty Patel made but because he's already left he now can't come and that just seems like such an injustice him and his wife sort of stuck in this terrible refugee camp that's been dubbed world's worst refugee camp, and you know he could have been on his way to the UK, and unfortunately he's not. So it's something that we're, you know, we're very much going to continue in
0: And this all came under the banner of the Betrayal of the Brave campaign. How much does that sort of big campaign backing give to something like this story?
1: Yeah, I think when you sort of starting a campaign I mean the, the reason this, this became a campaign was because the editor at the time had read the story about Popol and being executed in Iran and he was so horrified and he was like we really need to, to properly launch a campaign on this and then that means that you end up doing more than perhaps you would on a on an ordinary story you know like I said about evidence to the select committee getting MPs on board getting the petition together and it just sort of gives it all sort of a real strength and make sure that we're sort of focused on the issue and uh, so the politicians feel like they, they have to act upon it and they can't just ignore it.
0: And what sort of reaction did you get from the interpreters you were in touch with? You know, when they knew you were backing this, you, you were carrying out this campaign and they, they had the, the force of the paper behind them.
1: Oh, I mean, they've just been, I mean, they've just been so thankful that we've been, we've been helping them. Hash, one of the interpreters that I mentioned, who should now be coming to Britain in the next few months, because he now qualifies, he was sort of saying to us how he, how him and his wife just keep dreaming that something's going to change and that, you know, the UK will realise how much pain they're in. And he'd stayed up a few weeks ago until 3am waiting for the announcement because we'd sort of told him in advance that there might be something that could affect him. And he said that he'd woken his wife up and cause she was sleeping. And he just said it was, you know, the, the, the happiest moment of his life. And to these people, they really do feel that their, their lives have been saved by our campaign because to live in Britain where they feel safe and they're not constantly worried about the Taliban finding them is just a, you know, it's a real godsend.
0: And for you on a personal level to be involved in a campaign that you know, has this effect on these people's lives? What does that feel like as a journalist to be able to bring about change in, in some way for these people?
1: Oh, it's been amazing. We won Campaign of the Year in 2018 and it just, you know, it's incredible work on stories and feel that there's a real life impact and you can you can speak to people that whose lives you've changed and, you know, it's quite a rare thing to be able to do. So it's been absolutely amazing to be part of and you know sometimes it can feel incredibly emotional when you're ringing somebody up and telling them that they're you know that lives are about to change and they can now come to the UK it's really amazing.
0: Quite an amazing thing to be part of and, and to pursue it and a lot of hard work I would imagine. Yes it's
1: um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me and Dave Williams have spent many hours many many hours so I suppose it's not just the, the reports that you see in the newspaper it's, communicating with the interpreters all of the time and also, you know, helping them and offering them advice and working out what the the best way forward is. So yes, it's been extremely time consuming, but, you know, very, very
0: worthwhile. But this isn't the end. What do you hope will now happen. What's the next step for you?
1: The next step is for the government to allow interpreters who had already fled Afghanistan but would qualify under these new rules. I think allowing them to come to the UK. For example, the interpreter and his wife I spoke of in Lesbos and also getting rid of this sort of arbitrary 12 months, 18 months on the front line. I don't see why they have to have served that amount of time. And also another big thing for us is we've got Interpreters who we've spoken to have served for 17 years with British forces, one of them who's called Ricky, and because he didn't serve in Helmand, but he served in Kabul, he's also not been allowed into the UK, and that seemed very unfair, and also we've got to hold the government to account on the promises it's already made, so we've got to make sure that actually we do see 100 interpreters plus their families come to Britain and that all the wives that have been told they're able to join their husbands also get to the UK. So, you know, we've got to hold them to account on on both of those aspects.
0: Louisa Brown, a, a very worthwhile story, and thank you so much for sharing with us how you went about finding out about this and also how you hope to continue to pursue it.
1: Thank you. Pleasure.
0: Since we recorded this interview with Larissa, Ricky, the translator who had served for 18 years but had been prevented from coming to the UK because he did not work in Helmand province, has been granted sanctuary in Britain. You can read Larissa Brown's reporting on Ricky and the rest of her campaign on the Mail Plus app. That's it for today. We'll be back again soon with another episode of Scoop taking you behind the scenes of some of the male's biggest investigations. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts.